This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When we learned recently about a Holocaust survivor in Boulder named Walter Plywoski, we knew we had to document his story. He managed to stay alive in several concentration camps, including Auschwitz-Birkenau. Walter lost his mother, then his father in the camps, almost everyone. The horrors he lived through put future tribulations into perspective, like when he lost his home to the Four Mile Canyon fire in 2010. Compared to the Shoah, the Holocaust, nothing is serious. Nothing is awful. You use the Hebrew word there, Shoah, for Holocaust. And that has given you perspective for the rest of your life. Not that I wanted it. For Plywoski, the nightmare began in 1939. He was just a boy then, and he remembers some very tall men wearing swastikas who came into his family's pharmacy in Woj, Poland. They threatened his father, Max, gave the family half an hour to leave, and escorted them to a ghetto, a neighborhood where Jews were rounded up and fenced off. The thing is, these Nazis were familiar. These guys used to play cards with my father before the war. Was it hard to believe that family friends had turned so cruel? They didn't turn cruel. They, they were racist. That goes with the territory. What do you remember of the ghetto, Walter? A sudden fall from grace. I had a relatively happy childhood before the war. And here we were in the stinkiest, oldest, rottenest, barbed wire-surrounded environment with not enough food, not enough education, not enough of anything, especially not enough medication. You remember sickness being all around? Everywhere. It was designed into the place. It was designed to kill by disease, which in many ways it made it more cruel than the concentration camps because we were still in family units and had friends and acquaintances, and mothers had to watch their children starving to death and vice versa. What were your living conditions in the ghetto? At first we were shoved into a small room with about 20 people, most of whom we didn't know. But because of the pre-war contacts with powerful people in the ghetto, we were able to move out of that into more acceptable quarters. Your family had some leverage in that regard. Yes, what we used to call platze, meaning we had someone at our back. Before the war, my aunt worked with a man by the name of Mordechai Heimrumkowski, who was made by the Germans the, the king of the ghetto, ghetto. The Germans made him a king of the ghetto. Ordered him. So he, he wielded some power. He wielded almost total power. How did your family survive? I mean, what, what do you do for work in that environment? You can't leave the ghetto. As you, you say, there's barbed wire all around it, right? Well, my father was a pharmacist. He got an assignment to a pharmacy that had mainly aspirin. And my mother got advantage of working in a soup kitchen. I was given the work in a carpentry department at first. Shouldn't you have been in school? At first I was in school a little bit. But my father said, no, learn a trade. And this was all in the confines of the ghetto? Were yes. you, you were really never able to leave? Only at the end. 
What was that environment like? Were there Nazi guards everywhere? Um, Not did you... inside, but there were Nazi agents, Gestapo and criminal police. It was the most hermetically sealed ghetto of all the ghettos in Europe. And this was in Woj? Yes, because there were no sewers. Smuggling of items from outside was extremely difficult, extremely dangerous. Did you see people who were beaten up or killed in this environment for not following the oh, rules? Yes. Oh, yes. Every other day. The worst was coming across bodies of my friends and acquaintances lying on the street. Of your so, own age? Yes. Your schoolmates? Yes. And I remember still being able to have tears in my eyes because of it. Later on in the camps, the tears didn't matter. Didn't show up. You lost the ability to cry? Yes. And If these, you cried, you were dead. It was a sign of weakness. Yes. And you say that your classmates, uh, kids your own age, were not just dying because of starvation or disease, but because they were, they were beaten or Not mur- too murdered. many were beaten up to death, but some were shot by being near the guard barbed wire, or simply on a whim. On a whim. What was the illness? You, you made particular mention of the illness in the ghetto. Tuberculosis, typhus, typhoid, all kinds of intestinal problems, but not enough food. Do you remember what you ate? I re- remembered better that what I didn't eat. Which ghetto was given 600 calories per day per person? And you were a growing kid. You didn't get it quite all because some people would steal pieces of it. And most people didn't get as much as 200. And what was the food? A small slice of rotten bread, some frozen potatoes, kohlrabi, radishes, white, big white radishes. What do you remember thinking when you were hungry? How to steal food. How to steal food. That was... Extremely dangerous, because we were facing not only the German guards, but also the Jewish police within the ghetto. Even though my family was privileged, we were still on the bare edge of survival. Did you steal food? Yes. And did that mean stealing food from... From the... a store, or, but not from a person. But not from a person. I wasn't that desperate, but there were others who were. And so the notion of Jews stealing from other Jews, that, that was a situation that was forced upon some people. Of course. When you're starving, all you dream and think about is food. It doesn't leave your mind at all. You remember dreaming about food? Oh, absolutely. Except you had to control yourself when others were around not to talk about it. Because it made everybody more hungry. Did you notice a change in your parents when you were all living in the ghetto? Oh, definitely. My father was corpulent before the war. It's a nice word for being maybe a little overweight. A little overweight. (laughs) But that changed. That changed immediately. But he was convinced that he has to keep us prepared for life. He found an old man by the name of Ginsburg, who was a poet and a mathematician. 
and we had extra food from our connection. He paid this old man one or two slices of bread to tutor me and my adopted brother. You were there in the ghetto for several years, and one day in the winter of 1941, your father, whose name is Max, correct? Yes. He found a 10-year-old boy in a cold room. What was the boy doing? Holding the hand of his, frozen hand of his mother. Who had died. He used to be my cousin before the war, and we were fairly close before the war. And then after a few days when we didn't see him, we went over there to check on him, and that's what we found. Max took his hand, said, okay, you're coming with me, you're my son now. And he was thus made your brother, essentially, yeah. that day. Both of his parents died of TB. This young boy is, is William, is that right? His Polish name was Włodzimierz Fialko. A lot of the time, uh, people in the ghetto were hiding, and there were hunts. The population had gone from more than 160,000 people at one point to just 5,000 in August of 1944. You were one of those 5,000. Yes. And you were eventually put on a train. What was the ride in that train like, and did you have any idea where you were going? We had a pretty good idea where we were going. At least I did, because Max, my father had contact with the underground. So he'd gotten word that concentration camps existed? His Gentile friends outside of the wire, also the fact that he worked with people in the ghetto that listened to the radio, BBC, and they used to type up the news on tiny slips of paper that were distributed hand by hand. In the ghetto? Yes. Even though it was hermetically sealed, as you described it, there were ways of getting a message. Oh, yes. And so, in your young mind, what did you picture as your destination when you were on that train? I didn't picture the destination. I only kept thinking about the fact that we're out of the place, that I'm facing death, probably, and all of a sudden I smell fresh air through the small opening in the freight car. And actually I was able to peer out onto fields that I hadn't seen for a long time. There was also a young girl from Czechoslovakia. We both looked out that window and held hands. She was dead on arrival. Yes. She went immediately to the gas chamber at Auschwitz? Yeah. She had an open sore under her chin that convicted her to death. What an odd mix of emotions it must have been to at once feel the freedom of being out of the ghetto and seeing fields again, and yet knowing that there was impending doom. It it sounds like a real mix of emotions. I was told specifically by my father to keep appearing very strong, very determined, and very aggressive if they want to pull me over to attack them physically so that you die with hot blood. He thought that was an honorable way to die, fighting. It's the better one. It has nothing to do with honor. It has to do with freedom. It gave me the freedom inside my mind of knowing that I carried the last decision, not they. My guest is 86-year-old Walter Plywoski. 
He is a survivor of the Holocaust and decades later of a fire that claimed his home in the Boulder foothills. After a break, his experience at Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Back now to my conversation with Holocaust survivor Walter Plywoski of Boulder. He's 86, and we wanted to document his story, which includes time in several Nazi camps, among them Auschwitz-Birkenau. It was his first stop after being moved from the Jewish ghetto in Woj, Poland. I asked him what he remembers stepping off the train with his father Max, his mother, and his cousin. And remember, he's just 14 at the time. Screams, shouts, stench of burning meat. Rouse, 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 out, 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 and two huge pillars of red and black fire. Did you know what that fire was? I had no idea at first, but it was pointed out to me. That's how they kill here, both by my dad and by one of the stripers. What is a striper? Those people who were accepted by the Germans to help them unload the trains. And these were Jewish people? Most were Jewish, forced to do it just to retain life for a while, like the Sonderkommando of the gas chambers, who were killed periodically to make sure they know, nobody knew too much. And that word didn't get out about what was happening. I picture so often the scene of families being broken up immediately at the arrival. Was that true for your family? Were you separated oh, yes. immediately? The order was women left, men right. And I already knew what was taking place. And I wanted to run and say goodbye to my mother. And I didn't. Why didn't you? Because if I did, I would be convicting her to death to start with, and me too. It was immediately clear to you. From what I heard from my dad. Yeah, what the stakes were. Yes. Was William with you at this point, your cousin, your your adopted brother? Yeah, he was there. I don't know how he felt. I just don't know. Was that the last time you saw your mother? Yes. She was a very energetic woman with long black hair. When she let it down, it reached below her buttocks. What was your mother's name? Regina. Her family name was Fisher. How did you find out? What, when When did you receive word? She was the gone. next day when we were facing the women's camp, there was a woman we knew who was not killed on arrival. And my dad was standing with me and with Bill to the side, made an empty space beside himself, and went to this woman. A and sort she of said, a gesture to say, where is the person who would fill this spot? Yes. And she just moved her hand across her throat. My father made sure that there was nothing hidden, because what you don't know kills you. Did you appreciate that as a kid? Of course not. I do now. How did you feel about it then? Slightly resentful. But he always treated me very adult. How long were you able to stay with your father at Auschwitz? Throughout Auschwitz. We were at Birkenau rather than the main camp of Auschwitz. All along? All along. And Birkenau had had been added, in a way, because Auschwitz ran out of space, and and Birkenau was... Auschwitz had a very small gas chamber. 
and they built Birkenau specifically for mass production of death. And it was uh, a much more bare bones facility, would you say? Because uh, on my visit there, it seemed to me that um, definitely bare bones. Yeah, how you bunked, for instance, and how you went to the bathroom. I don't have a tattoo because in those days, life expectancy in Birkenau was two weeks. And so the tattoo that became that symbol of um, having been at a concentration camp, that wasn't given to you because it was such a factory of death. That was an advantage. How so? Because you were not immediately executable. If you had the tattoo, it meant... You had a job. They wanted to keep you around at least for a period of time. Yes. Describe the living conditions at Birkenau. There were huge wooden barracks, sometimes with wooden bunks in several tiers up, and no breaks between the beds to speak of. No linens or pillows? Of course not. One blanket and a small sack of rotten straw. What about the bathrooms? Well, you had to go and report yourself to go to the toilet. There was a big separate barracks with all kinds of halls where people would squat. What were the days like at Birkenau? Awful. Almost daily there was a selection. They would look at you and say, we'll keep you still or not. Those who were selected were sent to the guest chamber. So did you ever strike up a conversation with a guard? One night in the, get- in the Lutz ghetto, in effect, it was a quick conversation where my brother and I were beyond curfew and near the barbed wire, and there was a military policeman pointed a rifle at us. He could have shot us any time. I think I simply laughed at him. You laughed at him? Part of my being taught by Max. If you're in danger, laugh. Why? It puts the other guy off. It's unexpected. It's unexpected. So the guard said, do I understand German? And I said, yes. What are you doing here? We took a shortcut. We're sorry. Okay, disappear. That was it. That was it. Walter, back to Birkenau, what is remarkable is that you made it out of there alive. Yes. And so did William, your your brother. So did your father, correct? Yes. How did you make it out of a death camp alive? By showing up voluntarily for a transport to Germany. But it was like what we sometimes called German roulette, because sometimes they would say, there's a new transport to a work camp, and people would volunteer. They would grab them all and put them in a gas chamber, or not. In this case, it worked. And I actually had a conversation with an SS man, most likely a physician. We were ordered to step in rows of five while he looked at you, and if if he decided you were too weak, he would reach over with his walking stick and put it on your neck and pull you off to the side, like a shepherd with a crook. Meaning that that person would probably be executed. Not probably, for sure. Mm -hmm. Or he would just point with a finger to the side. But you, you weren't pointed at... You weren't set aside as too No, he started looking at me, and I picked up on it. So I beat him to it. Meaning what? (laughs) Your laughter technique. Yes. And what did that do? He said, why are you laughing? What do you want me to do, cry? Do you speak German? I speak German, yes. And you see, the rule 
in Birkenau was, if you're under 15, you cannot live a life. I was 14 and a half. Did he challenge you on your age? Yes, our boys, when they're your age, they're already fighting the evil Bolsheviks on the Eastern Front. said, you've been feeding me for four years. How big would they have been given the same? Wow. Okay, you're right, go. You are so self-possessed at that point to be able to speak to power that way and to be so clever. I'm, I find that remarkable. I inherited a good brain and I locked out having good parents, especially father who could look at reality and teach it. What about William? He was younger than you. Was, was he as... Not much. Not much. But was he as savvy as you? Not really. He was more of a follower. But all three of you made it on to progressive work camps in, yes. Ger- in Germany? Yes. And we wound up in Riederlow, which was a punishment camp. So you went from Birkenau to... Landsberg 1, Landsberg 2, Riederlow, Dachau Main Camp, to Augsburg, to Burgau, from Burgau to Turkheim, from Turkheim to Karlsfeld, Death March. Over how, how long a period was, were all of those transfers? Slightly less than a year. And so when you'd land in a place, you had no confidence that you would be there for very long, I guess. Well, there was also a, an advantage being in a different place. How so? Because they would look at you and you didn't know enough. The notion that any one person had a lot of information about what the Germans were doing, that was a threat to the Germans. And so... It was a threat to your life. Yeah. And so if you didn't know a lot, you were safer. You didn't want to stand out from the crowd. But if being treated as a crowd, you, you can only save yourself by standing out away from the crowd. What happened at Reader Law? Well, first, when we arrived, we had to run a gauntlet. SS and trustee capos with clubs and rifles on both sides, you had to run between them maybe 30 or 40 feet while being beaten. If you fell, you were dead. Then we were held without any food or water for almost 24 hours in an empty barracks, then assigned various details. Like? Well, carrying a bucket full of or a bucket full of soup, for instance. And what saved me there was there were two guys who were Polish Gentiles who wangled for me a job assignment being a runner between the camp and the SS, hmm. carrying important information. It was at Readerlow that your father decided to speak up to power. Yes. What happened? He died. But he died on his feet, and it was his final illustrated lesson how to behave. You witnessed this? Yes. What happened? Max screamed at the camp commandant extremely insulting German words for maybe a minute. We all froze. Nobody moved, including the commandant. Then the commandant grabbed a shovel and beat Max over the head with it many times. In front of you? I jumped in in front of Max and begged to stop. He said, okay, he had enough. He knew me from being the runner. Why do you refer to your father as Max, not Dad? Of course, when I spoke to him, I called him Dad. Mm Mm-hmm. 
not Max. I wouldn't have dared. <laughs> but now I think of him as a comrade. You had to grow up so fast. Well, if you don't, you're dead. Not much choice. Did your dad die um, right after the beating? Did he hold on? or day and a half later, in the barracks of the, the people who are already dying, like he was. When you're dying on your feet from malnutrition, it affects your brain, and you start behaving catatonically. And so they would put all of these folks in a, in a place separate from the rest of the population. Yeah, one barracks, mm-hmm. full of dying, barely moving people. Do you remember why your father shouted at the the commander? I think what started it was he was brought in with a group of other men for a shower. They turned on the cold water. Mm-hmm. And somehow my father picked that point to say, you're too goddamn cheap to turn on some hot water. And there was plenty of hot water because that building was also used to boil clothing to kill the lice. It was that interaction, that anger your father felt that got him killed. I think he was planning to do something. What do you mean? I think it was planned. Do you think he wanted to die? Yes. And so that it was a, a form of, of gosh, what, a, a kind of valiant ending. Um, to call it suicide it, it doesn't heroic. seem right. It took amazing amount of mental stamina to do what he did. Did you realize what he was doing? at that time or is it that in only the, in, on reflection on reflection you're with colorado matters i'm ryan warner and today holocaust survivor walter plywoski is sharing his story he's 86 lives in boulder in the city he used to be in the foothills until the four mile canyon fire destroyed his home in 2010 coming up liberation and stowing away to come to america this is colorado matters from cpr news You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At his dining room table in Boulder, I sat down with Holocaust survivor Walter Plywoski. He managed to make it through a long string of Nazi camps with his life. But his parents were murdered. His mother at Auschwitz, his father at Riederlow outside of Munich. As we said, it it wasn't over for you. You moved through more camps with your brother William on April 15th, 1945, the camp you were in at the time was bombed by the Allied forces, and that was your chance to escape. And suddenly, you and William find yourselves in the midst of the U.S. Army. We escaped. There was some shooting at us, and we slunk around to an abandoned German anti-aircraft unit where I ate the very best Meal of my entire life. There was food there. Still on a stove, a pot about a foot and a half in diameter and maybe two feet tall, full of German filled issue corned beef and potatoes and mushrooms. And whoa. Later on, I ate twice at two five star restaurants in France. No comparison. <laughs> Nothing tasted better than that meal Nothing. that day. Never, ever, ever again in my entire life will I taste anything like that. And yet, of course, after you've been malnourished for a long time and you see a lot of food, there's the risk of 
of overeating and of, of endangering your health. I don't even. remember being sick with it. It just tasted good. Just ate more and more. William, too? Yeah. Also, we found clean clothing, German Luftwaffe uniforms, and we bathed in DDT. To get rid of the lice? Lice and fleas. We're eaten alive. Everywhere, in every camp, that was the case. What did that feel like? You get used to it. When you have time, you take off your shirt and look at the seams and squeeze the blood out of those with your fingernails. That's what it feels like. Does it itch? Does it hurt? Of course. Both of it those. It itches. Mm-hmm. And they carry disease. Right. They keep you awake, whatever little sleep you have. So at what point do you run into Allied troops? Okay, after we, we bathed in DDT and put on German uniforms, we only kept our striped jackets. Always thinking. We don't want to appear too German because we were headed for the Allied lines. Mm. But we had steel helmets and potato meshers. I had a Schmeister machine pistol. So you had a helmet and you were armed? Yes. Okay. But you can't look like an enemy or the forces will kill you. At the so same you time, you do, cannot look like a partridge in a pear tree. Mm-hmm. And so after about two-mile march towards the shooting, all of a sudden a whole bunch of funny-looking soldiers jump out from a ditch to the side and tell us to raise our hands and drop our weapons. They marched us to their field headquarters, and there was a sergeant from Chicago who spoke. We refused to speak German, pretended we didn't understand, so as not to be taken for very young German soldiers. As any kind of threat, right. And he said, hey, he told the other Americans who we were, that we were Jewish Poles, told us, throw away all this German shit, we'll give you American shit. <laughs> when did you first feel safe again? Right there. And then first American breakfast, cream of wheat with lots of sugar and butter and honey. I threw that up twice. Eventually it stayed. Oh, and something that the guys taught me later on to call on a shingle. Okay, what was that? Scrambled powdered eggs on toast. Gross. Had you spoken English? How did you learn English? By listening. To the GIs? Yes. Hmm. Does that explain your uh, penchant for swear words? Well, I also use swear words in Polish. I see. And German. I'm not so good at cussing in French. You eventually made it to the United States. How did you get across the pond? Well, I was always in a uniform of U.S. Army, so that gave me a lot of freedom. You were really in the care of U.S. soldiers, and that helped then. They offered the care. And the bond between us and combat veterans was that both of us used to dance to the tune of death to a different music. And so it was this connection that helped you come to America. Well, I eventually decided I'm leaving Europe. I was at that time still a civilian employee of U.S. Army hmm. in Strasbourg, Graves Registration Unit. Graves Registration yes. Unit. 
they were operating all over Europe, trying to find forgotten uh, graves of American soldiers. Hmm. And I was used as a translator from English to German. You passed through Ellis Island in New York. Well. Is that right? I first went to Le Havre, to Stowaway. To Le Havre in France. Because you were a stowaway? Is that how you got across? Yes. A stowaway on what kind of ship? Liberty Freighter. So this was not even a comfortable passenger ship. What was stowing away like? Well, I worked. So once they found that you were on the ship, they put you to work. You probably were willing to work. Well, I was for three, almost three days unfound. See, because of the uniform, I was able to approach the gangplank guard. I whipped out a notebook. I said, I am a reporter from Stars and Stripes. What is your home? Did you play football in home at your high school? I did an entire interview. We would like to have, have a good article about merchant mariners hmm. in the paper. You think I should interview some more people of your body? Yeah, I just could. <laughs> and there you were. There I was. Again, your cleverness is what helps you survive, Walter. Sneakiness. Sneakiness? Okay. Well, you make it to the United States. As I say, you pass through Ellis Island in New York. You join the U.S. Air Force. You make it to Oregon, and you get a degree in electrical engineering. And in all of this, you eventually apply for citizenship. Um, but there's a sticking point in that. You don't want to pledge allegiance to God during the swearing-in ceremony. Yes, I didn't want to. Why? Because I don't believe in God. Was that a function of what you'd experienced? Probably. Had you I believed would, in God I before? Would, sort of. My father was very secular. He was an agnostic. And so I guess I did not have any religious anchoring. And an anchor like that drags you down. You got help from the American Civil Liberties Union. And your federal case, uh, in the end, gives new citizens the right not to make the pledge? Yes. Is I that... won. Yeah. Establish the right of anybody to say, no, I don't want to swear on God. This was already a privilege given to Quakers and so on. What soup for the chickens is soup for the turtles. Hmm. Why did you move to Boulder in 1965? I like mountains. <laughs> Why? Did they remind you of something? Well, there was a lot of fun before the war with my family. Also, I liked the idea of low population density. Is that a function of what you'd experienced too? I get slightly nervous in crowds, to say the least. And so, for many years, you lived in the foothills outside of Boulder. And I heard, actually, that several years ago, you would show up at neo-Nazi functions in Denver wearing a yarmulke, a red yarmulke? Sure. Also, whenever I traveled in Germany, that was a special yarmulke. You don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. The Germans didn't care a whit. They didn't ask me if I believe in God. They just said, you're Jewish. That was enough. And so you maintain that part of your identity very closely, it sounds like. I earn it. The price was high. Is it true that William, your cousin, your, in a way, adopted brother, he lives in Boulder too? Yes, up in the foothills. Are you close? 
we're sort of close. We have some sibling problems, but we meet frequently. Does he talk much about what happened? He almost cannot talk about it. It was in the Boulder foothills where you moved that you also lost your home to fire. Yep, sure did. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Did you think at any point, haven't I had enough bad luck? Isn't that enough? No, I didn't. No. I simply said, hey, fire's not supposed to be descending ridges. That's what I was thinking. As you evacuated? I was 50 feet away from 100-foot flames. I had to get a couple of friends out of the house. People friends? Animal friends? Both. Hmm. Two cats. Don't ever try to put two cats in a car. <laughs> Even, especially... You put one the... in and the other one jumps out. <laughs> I see. Did you ever reconnect with the GIs who took you in? Very definitely, yes. There's some of them, anyway. I wrote to them from Ellis Island. And one of them was responsible for the fact that I was let out of Ellis Island because he told his aunt, who was the mistress of a very rich man in Philadelphia, he suddenly showed up on Ellis Island with a couple of attorneys, gave me a bunch of cash. That's for cigarettes and candy. You're getting out of here. Hmm. That's how I got out. Are any of them still alive? No. I went to some gatherings of veterans whom I used to know and so on. They all quietly went to their rest. In 2013, you received the Knight's Cross of Merit. It's one of Poland's highest honors, and it was given to you at Denver's Meisel Museum. The Polish president was there to recognize your, quote, outstanding services to the Polish-American community in disseminating historical awareness on Polish and Jewish faiths in occupied Poland. Uh, you have shared your story with many others over the years. Why? Why do it? Mm-hmm. Payback. My life was saved several times by anonymous Polish Gentiles. One Jew could not help another Jew. We were at the bottom of a pile. I think if you really dig for it, you'll find that those Jews who survived were helped by a Gentile somehow, because there was no way one Jew could help another one. Hmm. No way at all. No food, no money, no, no power. And how does that influence why you tell your story? I don't like to carry debts. I like to pay them back. And so you feel that sharing your story and illuminating that history is paying a debt. These guys were risking their lives to help me. In Dachau Main Camp, there were two male nurses. I was set aside to be a guinea pig for malaria experiments. And they started showing up several times a day with some extra food. Hard-boiled egg. Wow. Mm. And then after about six, maybe seven days, they put a corpse in my bed and smuggled me out. And I rejoined my brother in the quarantine barracks. And so it's this notion that people helped you that spurs you to share your story and to help people as, as, as you can by sharing it. Yes, that's definitely true. I think back to that uh, girl in the train, and it makes me wonder if you ever found love, Walter. After the war, yes. Yeah? I did. Time and time again. The beauty of life is flowers and women. Hmm. Who's the love of your life today? Right now, 
what keeps me really happy having three children, three girls, five grandchildren, and f- you Germans. Thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you for asking. 86-year-old Walter Plywoski of Boulder, who survived the Holocaust. There are photos of Walter, one of him with that Polish medal, at cprnews.org. We'll be right back on Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Fort Collins is known for craft beer, startups, and ag research, so much so that it's included in Places of Invention, a new Smithsonian exhibit in Washington, D.C. Just six cities made the cut. Others are Hollywood, California, Hartford, Connecticut, and the Bronx, New York. Smithsonian senior historian Joyce Beatty curated the Fort Collins section, and she joins us from Washington. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. First off, what makes a city a place of invention? When we talk about places of invention, we're talking about much more than geography. We're talking about the right mix of inspiring surroundings, creative people, and untapped resources. There isn't a recipe for making a place of invention, but when these ingredients come together, they can foster a fluorescence of invention and innovation. A fluorescence of invention. I like that. Uh, But it seems to me that certainly more than six cities in the U.S. would make that cut. Oh, definitely. We, if we could have taken over the entire museum, we could have filled it with stories of places of invention across the country. But we were limited by space in the exhibition. And so we wanted to find a mix of stories that were diverse geographically as well as chronologically. And so that's why we have stories that go from Hartford, Connecticut in the late 19th century to Fort Collins, Colorado today. Today. So it's really a very current focus on Fort Collins. And and why did it make the cut? So we wanted a place that it wasn't quite cooked yet, where the end of the story wasn't known. And what is cooking? What are you seeing cooking in Fort Collins? (laughs) What's cooking there is really a group of people who are fiercely dedicated to the work that they're doing and to being agents of change. And they come from various walks of life. So we feature in the exhibition Kim Jordan, the CEO of New Belgium, because New Belgium has a very uh, vibrant sustainability culture. We look at Brian Wilson and the work with cookstoves for developing countries. We look at Amy Prieto and the new kind of battery that she is developing that will be non-toxic to the environment. We look at Sunil Sharian, who is working on smart grid technology to use less energy and to keep the electricity grid more stable and sustainable. Ed Van Dyne, who's working on super turbos for uh, vehicle engines to recapture energy that is now wasted in an engine and put it back to work. You mentioned uh, earlier the cook stoves. This is the idea that many people in developing countries use uh, what are really very polluting systems that harm their health, harm the air that they breathe. Uh, And then uh, you single out uh, New Belgium. And why should a beer company be considered an energy leader? Uh, New Belgium's an energy leader in my mind for a number of reasons. One is that they were one of the first original participants in the Fort Zed experiment. Fort Zed stands for Zero Energy District. It's a the historic downtown area of Fort Collins and the main part of CSU campus that have joined together the city, local businesses in that area, and the and the 
University have joined together to create a district that produces at least as much energy as it uses. The company was founded with this environmental stewardship as one of their founding goals when it was just Kim Jordan and her now ex-husband. And they've taken that to many levels at the brewery. They have installed voltaic panels on many of the buildings. They have a wastewater treatment plant. They divert 99.9% of their waste from landfills. So it's this ongoing effort to make the brewing of beer as sustainable as possible and do as least harm to the environment as possible. I think that the the Fort Zed example of all of those uh, entrepreneurs and companies and institutions coming together reflects something that is in your exhibit, which is that we so often have the picture of the lone inventor tinkering away at, you know, his or her workshop. Um, But I think what you find when you look at communities of invention and innovation is that there's a collaborative culture. It's not the lone individual in the garage necessarily. That's correct. The lone inventor is mythology. Even independent inventors who aren't connected to large companies or universities are very seldom, if ever, lone inventors. They have a community around them, whether it is people who listen to their ideas or people who help with the process, do research for them, help with technical details. Collaboration is is really important to the inventive process. Thinking through a problem, sketching solutions, bouncing ideas off peers, these are all critical. Yeah, and the Lemelson Center at the Smithsonian has studied invention and innovation for 20 years, in fact. It's researched creative places. What's the biggest revelation you would share with another community if they want to be a place like this? I think the most interesting thing for me that that we've seen in the communities that we've studied is this idea of commonalities. Things like flexibility, collaboration, communication, risk-taking, and openness to failure. We also saw that places of invention tend to have a life cycle. Uh, for research labs, we, we saw about a 20-year life cycle. Hmm. So it's interesting to watch a place of invention grow. Sometimes they continue on for quite some time. Sometimes they dip and come back. Chris, I think of Detroit as the quintessential example Mm. of a place of invention that wound up being one in need. Yes. I I suppose the question is then what comes next for Fort Collins? And and might it be a supernova, you know, that that burns hot and disappears fast? Well, I, I don't have a crystal ball. But from an outsider's view, Fort Collins looks like it will continue its trajectory of success for some time. And I say that based on things like the support of the city government, the fact that key innovators and inventors are dedicated to both their work and to remaining in Fort Collins. I say that because Colorado State University plays a pivotal role in the innovation culture of Fort Collins. It encourages cross-disciplinary teams. It collaborates with the city and local businesses. As as I pointed out, Fort Zed is a great example of that. And perhaps its history as a land-grant university makes it a little more connected to its physical location. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Joyce Beatty is a senior historian at the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center. She curated the Fort Collins section of a new exhibition called Places of Invention. It's at the American History Museum in Washington, D.C. 
I'm Ryan Warner. Special thanks to Michael Dayoana for today's program. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mm-hmm.